This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And today, we're going to talk about weed, pot, Mary Jane. Over the last decade, the conversation about cannabis legalization has remained one of the most dominant policy conversations in state houses around the country. It's been one of the biggest public policy shifts and cultural shifts in my lifetime. I grew up in the days of the D.A.R.E. program and Just Say No, and it feels like that's a world away from where we are today. So I wanted to dig into how the policy and public opinion has changed over time, why states continue to legalize marijuana, what the myths, benefits, and concerns are, and what lessons we might be able to learn to move the needle on other policy issues. So today I'm excited to talk to Amy O'Gorman-Jenkins. Amy is the founder of Precision Advocacy, a California-based lobbying firm and a senior policy director to the California Cannabis Industry Association. She has over 25 years of experience in legislative, public affairs, and campaign roles and spearheaded the policy and legislation for California's legal cannabis industry, including Prop 64, which was approved in 2016 and legalized cannabis for adult use. And she's been named one of the 100 top power brokers in California and has even been dubbed Pot Girl by the Sacramento Bee. Amy, Thank you for making the time today. Welcome to Politicology and happy 420. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) So uh, we should give a shout out to Mike Madrid for introducing us. And uh, I thought we'd start by how you became pot girl in the first place. What made you decide that this was the policy area you were going to become an expert in? It was completely by happenstance. So I grew up in Sonoma County, California, and uh, pot was fairly pervasive in this community, though I was not a consumer. I later went on to work for the League of California Cities, where I had the privilege of meeting and working with Mr. Madrid on a fairly regular basis. And what I found fascinating about that was the fact that we are one of the most heavily regulated states, and yet we had almost zero policy around cannabis at the time. So while at the league, I was very intrigued by that. I later went on to work in the California State Legislature, where I met Lou Correa, who is now in Congress. And uh, I pitched Lou this idea that we should pursue a regulatory framework for medicinal cannabis in California. And he balked at the idea initially. And then fast forward a few years later, he was nearing the end of his term in the state legislature, and we were uh, coincidentally approached by the League of California Cities, where I previously worked saying, hey, we need to regulate cannabis in California. Will you help us? So that began a 18-month journey for me uh, as a chief of staff. We introduced a medicinal cannabis bill. It became the first bill that had ever been introduced that had support from local government, law enforcement, and the cannabis community. Unfortunately, it it did not get as far as we wanted. It died uh, in the second house. 
And uh, I knew that if I could find a way to bring it back the next year, that I could get it signed. And so I went ahead and started meeting with different cannabis groups that I had been working with in during my time as a chief of staff and picked up the California Cannabis Industry Association. And that began our journey. And in 2015, we passed the Medical Marijuana Regulation and Safety Act, which was really the blueprint for Prop 64 in California. And everybody knows what happened with Prop 64. So that's probably a major milestone most people will be familiar with. But can you give us a lay of the land, uh, like a general overview of cannabis laws in the U.S. outside of California? Yes, there are currently 36 states that have either an adult use or medicinal cannabis framework. Um, That began actually in California with the passage of the Compassionate Care Act in 1996. And then we didn't see much activity until 2012 when Colorado and Washington became the first states to legalize cannabis for adult use. Then what followed were uh, subsequent years of uh, cannabis legalization. Uh, So Alaska, Oregon, and the District of Columbia followed suit in 2014. And then we saw massive transformation in November of 2016, which was California. And then there were seven other states that approved uh, adult use cannabis, legalized cannabis. Um, and then we've, we've, from that point forward, we've seen a number of states and that brings us to 36. Um, right now, uh, the US population, there are more people living in a medicinal or adult use state than not. And 43% of Americans actually live in a state that authorizes adult use. So we've seen a dramatic shift in the last 20 years. Uh, we are actually looking at I believe, seven potential adult use measures for consideration this year as well. Okay, so I want to talk about the public perception that goes along with legalization. I think as with most issues, as public opinion changes, the laws tend to change. And cannabis was first legalized for adult use in California in 1996, right, through Prop 215. It was medicinal. Medicinal. Okay. And at that time, Gallup's social series tracking poll had 25% of Americans saying that marijuana should be legal. Last November, fast forward, uh, that number was up to 68%. So can you help us begin to understand how public perceptions of cannabis have changed since then, what the major drivers have been? And I mentioned in the intro, you know, uh, I grew up uh, in the 80s and uh, and I remember it, late 80s, early 90s, the Don't Say, uh, Just Say No to Drugs program, the the D.A.R.E. program. And it, it, like I said, it feels like we're so far away from that. Why, mm-hmm. why have things changed so much so fast? I think that's a good question. And I think we're, st- I am still trying to analyze what this means and why such a dramatic shift. We do see public perceptions change with the passage of these measures. So, um, with the passage of Proposition 64 in California, it passed with well over 60% of the vote. Um, what we have, what we see with the enactment of this legislation and cannabis coming into communities is a real normalization of of these businesses. I think there's a lot of misperceptions out there about what cannabis is and who is the cannabis industry. So with the passage of these measures, it becomes more mainstream. So I work with a lot of cannabis operators in California, and they are subject to a number of requirements as an industry. So we have extensive community benefit um, requirements. Um, they, They have to integrate into communities. And so I think with that integration comes a real sense of normalization. And then we also see uh, a lot more uh, education and science around the medicinal aspects of cannabis. So with the emerging science coupled with legalization, I think it just becomes much more normal in communities and easier for people to accept. Yeah. the uh, I think you mentioned legalization for recreational purposes is a relatively new uh, trend. Yes. And before 2012, there weren't any states where marijuana was legal for recreational use. But 
Um, I think it's nearly half. Is that what you mentioned of the U.S. population? I think it's about, it's a little over 40% of the U.S. population is in a adult use state, but over well over a majority of the U.S. population is in an adult use or medicinal state. Do you stay away from the word recreational because uh, it invokes uh, maybe the wrong idea when you're talking to lawmakers? And do you use adult use instead of recreational for that reason? I do. In California, we tend to use adult use. Uh, recreational tends to be the, the nomenclature that most use nationally. But yes, in California, we have our own lingo, so adult use prevails. <laughs> if this were a different podcast, we'd already be high in talking about this. But anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, so since I think you said 40%, nearly 40% of the mm-hmm. U.S. population lives in a state where marijuana was legal for recreational or adult use. Can you give us an understanding of what's caused such a big policy change so quickly from medical to recreational? And I live in Washington, D.C. When the medical program first became technically legal, now we're a complicated state, not not really a state because Congress has oversight here. And I think it was Jason Chaffetz who was holding up uh, uh, true legalization in Washington, D.C. Um, but I, I jumped through the hoops to get a medical marijuana card. Uh, and, um, and soon after that program, uh, maybe it was a year or two after they rolled out that program, uh, it became legal to just buy a cookie and receive a free gift uh, instead, of, instead of actually just going to a recreational dispensary like you would in Colorado or California or any of the other states you mentioned. I'd like to understand exactly What's what's going on there with this, you know, wink, wink, here's a cookie and a gift uh, and why the policy hasn't caught up to the fact that people are clearly just exploiting a loophole and this ought to change uh, the law as well. Well, I think in some respects you answered that question from the standpoint that, you know, medicinal states and even medicinal jurisdictions. So I live it just just very close to to the city of Napa in California. Napa was a medical-only community where you could walk into the dispensary and online obtain a physician's recommendation. So I think people realize that there are a lot of uh, consumers that are consuming cannabis that are not necessarily medical patients. So that's that's one thing that I think people begin to realize as medicinal cannabis, you know, enters jurisdictions and enters communities. The other piece that I notice, however, is that jurisdictions or states realize the revenue benefits of cannabis. So as as medicinal states come online, much like California in 1996, you saw a proliferation of cannabis operations and you saw potential tax revenue benefits associated with those. So I think I think communities begin to think about ways to generate revenue and realize that cannabis is certainly an option for them. There's also tremendous job creation and economic benefits um, associated with cannabis. And then again, I think there's all of the emerging science, much of what which is coming out of um, Israel and other countries, but we're also seeing the the science uh, around cannabis and the medicinal benefits um, that should be enjoyed not just by medicinal patients, but for the average consumer that may be sleep deprived, may not want to um, consume uh, pharmaceuticals or or medically prescribed drugs. And so, I think there's lots of different. Um, transition points or or issues that are motivating people to rethink policies and turn towards adult use. This is basically the difference between legalization and decriminalization, right? Right. So can you talk about the tension between those two things, those two policy approaches? And then I'd love to come back to the economic benefits as well. Social equity is is become um, really a key... key component of adult use and cannabis legalization. So I touched briefly on the economic benefits. I think what we have seen is um, legalization has been driven in part by a desire to correct the injustices of cannabis criminalization. You talked about the D.A.R.E. program. You talked about the war on drugs. So I do think that is kind of complementary to the adult use movement is this idea that the war on drugs 
did not work, that um, cannabis disproportionately impacted communities of color and socioeconomically disadvantaged areas. And this is an opportunity to bring people into a space where they can uh, generate revenue and um, lift themselves up. So criminalization of cannabis is, is definitely something that is being corrected in large part with the adult use movement. Um, I can say a lot about whether or not social equity programs are working, and I'm happy to touch on that. Um, but that is certainly part of the larger conversation around cannabis legalization nationally. Yeah, I'd love to just linger on that for a moment um, because I saw a story out of, coming out of New York a few weeks ago about, um, I'm not sure which authority was responsible, but they made a decision to grant uh, um, priority licenses of the X number of licenses for operating a cannabis business in New York. Uh, I think the city said they were giving away uh, basically priority access to those licenses to people who had been uh, imprisoned because of marijuana-related offenses. Um, I'm, I assume that's one example of some of the social equity programs under cannabis, and I'd love to hear what you think of that, whether they're working. And by working, we should say, are they having the intended effect uh, or are they just happening? I think there is a desire and a commitment on the part of policymakers to advance social equity. I don't think that we have found the magic recipe yet. Uh, to achieve success. So statistically speaking, for instance, I believe uh, African-Americans represent 13%, um, but only 2% are of African-Americans are engaged in the cannabis space. So when we look at social equity programming, and I should mention that I believe there are to date 15 states that have implemented social equity programs, I think most would argue that none have proven to be holistically successful, if you will. Um, however, uh, there, there is a lot more work and, and energy being directed towards social equity, particularly in the, you know, following uh, what happened with Black Lives Matter and um, the tragic death of George Floyd, we're, we're beginning to see kind of a resurgence in, in desire to improve outcomes for social equity operators. But again, it is still very, very early. Um, I think California in particular is a pioneer. And yet when you talk to social equity applicants and social equity operators, they can they will continue to share with you that, that despite the fact that California has invested about 90 million in its equity program since it was enacted in 2018, more work needs to be done. And when I think about that work, in large part, the complaint is around the fact that most of these individuals who meet the social equity criteria, and, and most states have a social equity definition, um, need a lot of resources to, to establish a cannabis business. Cannabis is you know, highly regulated. Um, it requires a significant amount of capital. And that is just something that um, is very, very difficult when you are um, somebody that has dis been disproportionately impacted um, by you know, the war on drugs. You might live in an underserved community. There is a significant amount of supports and financial resources that are needed to, to build a cannabis company. And so what I have observed in looking at social equity program, you can prioritize um, as a state or as a local jurisdiction. But unless you are willing and able to provide those you know, resources up front, it is still incredibly difficult for um, a social equity applicant as defined to establish and sustain a legal cannabis business. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I wonder if there are opportunities to partner with for example, entrepreneurship programs and, and entrepreneurship uh, training mentorship programs at the state level to help, you know, get those prioritized licenses into the hands of people who are actually already learning how to run a business. 
one of the things I was going to mention is, um, again, I'm, I'm very familiar with California's program, and I was, I'm very proud to have been part of the development of, of our, um, our social equity program in the state. Um, there are a lot of supports that are being explored. What makes, I believe, California unique is that the social equity programs in California are largely run by the local jurisdictions. So where you are seeing success locally is where the local jurisdictions, San Francisco is a great example. Um, they do partner with you know, the local bar association and other nonprofit groups. And that's where you're really seeing more successful outcomes. Now, conversely, there are communities, other communities in California, where the there is a substantial amount of revenue going to those jurisdictions, but the money is not actually getting out into those communities. So I do think to your point, there are um, success stories, but they tend to be a bit more isolated and um, I think the conversation around um, what what you know a best practice or what a successful uh, equity program is um, is still to be determined. I think there's a lot more work and analysis that needs to be done to determine um, what those successful outcomes might look like. Okay, let's go back to economic development. As an outsider to the industry and the policymaking side of marijuana, my sense, sort of watching from a distance, has been, uh, well, Colorado did it, saw a huge revenue surplus as a result of the taxes, and every other state in the country dropped their beer, looked at Colorado, and said, we got to do what they're doing. Um, that's a that is a obviously a very superficial reading of the dynamic, but I wonder if you can unpack that for me. Tell me if I'm right, and sort of take us behind the curtain into what those conversations were like and who was driving them for the most part. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think that you know what we saw in Colorado with the the enactment of their adult use program was a significant amount of revenue. If, if I recall correctly, there was a substantial new investments in education and other social programs. Um, and I did, you know, you saw other states look at those examples and realize the tremendous benefits um, associated with legalizing cannabis for adult or recreational use. Um, I can tell you in some of the most recent analyses that I've seen, it looks like states, adult use states, so the 15 states, have collected, I think about 3.7 billion was the estimate in 2021. So, and that does not include um, collections on um, medicinal cannabis. So this is just isolated to adult use. And so as you begin to, to see that revenue generation uh, capability, that is certainly something that brings a lot of states or draws a lot of interest from other states. So I think, I think your um, perspective is, is, is absolutely accurate in that um, you know states that are looking for revenue see cannabis. And that also applies to local jurisdictions as well. So most, most legalized states have um, you know, local um, land use requirements and locals are able to prohibit uh, cannabis in their jurisdictions. It's a huge problem in California right now. And uh, those that are um, that are allowing or authorizing commercial cannabis activity are also doing so in large part because of the revenue potential. So I think you're spot on in terms of your assessment. The one thing that I think we are beginning to see, however, is in legacy states or early adopter states like Oregon, uh, like Washington, like California, we're now beginning to see um, kind of a stabilization of the market and in some cases a decline and tax revenues as, again, things stabilize and um, and the industry begins to mature and potentially oversaturate in some segments. So cultivation, as an example, right now we're seeing an abundance of, of cannabis product, and so you're seeing a drop in the market. So I think uh, we're, we're just beginning to see um, areas where we're seeing a decline, but for the most part, most uh, states are benefiting um, tremendously from the new revenue generation capabilities and funding um, significant program priorities um, 
for those states. Given the revenue potential, what's holding the rest of the states back? Or do you really think it's just, you know, the dominoes are falling and it's only a matter of time? I think the dominoes are falling and it's only a matter of time. Absolutely. I, um, I, you know, we're looking at, again, seven states in 2022. The other thing I'm observing is most of the early adopters of adult use and medicinal cannabis, that was done through voter initiative. And what we're seeing is greater political will among um, newer states that are coming online. So I think we saw the first um, uh, piece of legislation for adult use approved, I want to say it was Vermont in 2018, followed by Illinois in 2019. And the states that are considering in 2022, I believe it is all through legislation and not voter initiative. So I think I think that suggests there's greater political will. It's safer to pursue this, the legislative route in lieu of voter initiative. And so I think it's, again, it's only a matter of time, as you indicated. Okay. So I want to talk to the myth uh, or myths that seem to persist around cannabis, even as more and more people support legalization. Um, As you said, the dominoes are falling. I think there can be a bit of a taboo around marijuana use still. And that leads uh, to some myths about the impact cannabis use can have or what impact legalization can have. Um, Can you talk about what the most common misconceptions are of uh, cannabis use and legalizing cannabis? Sure. Uh, there, th- there was a study that was conducted by Leafly, and it was a cannabis publication. It came out in 2019, and I still use it to this day, and it's been complemented by more recent studies. But Leafly explored kind of the three common myths, and that was uh, crime rate going up, teen use going up, and property values going down. And what they did was in their analysis, they um, actually used um, independent uh, studies that were not you know, conducted by the cannabis industry or paid for by the cannabis industry. And it was 42 key studies, I believe, they examined. And what they found was that in every instance, crime rates were either unaffected or they went down. Uh, teen use was unaffected or it went down and property values went up. So when in going back to crime, most states require, or even local jurisdictions require um, enhanced camera surveillance, security. A lot of times cannabis retail dispensaries in particular are zoned in more underserved, socioeconomically disadvantaged communities. So when a cannabis operator comes in and you have paid security, you have camera surveillance, you're cleaning up the streets, that means reduced crime rates. And in fact, there was an example in Los Angeles where there were dispensary operations that were shut down in 2010 through a city action. And where the dispensaries were shut down, you saw crime go up. So that's been that was a very interesting statistic. And, and I see that everywhere. In fact, there's a classic example I use in Sacramento, where one of the first legal dispensaries was um, was zoned across the street from a Montessori school. And um, the crime rates went down and the school has fully embraced that dispensary. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so I use that all the time when, when lobbying. Um, and then with respect to teen use, um, there's still a lot of, of data to be analyzed. But what we do find is in legalized states, there is significant investment made in youth education and prevention programming. California is no exception. We invest substantially in youth prevention intervention programs for youth. And so what we're seeing is um, either youth use unaffected or in fact, it goes down because again, you're investing greater resources into um, an education and understanding of the impacts of cannabis. And what you also find with youth is in legal stores, there are so many safeguards that are embedded in legislation to protect against youth accessing cannabis that in all of the studies that I've reviewed, including studies where um, it's universities that are working in partnership with law enforcement, I have not found a single case in California 
where a licensed dispensary allowed a person underage to go in or sold cannabis to a person underage. So that is a myth that is being quickly dispelled. And then last but not least, the property issue. Um, what we're finding is rates go up, um, property tax values go up 6 to 8% in communities that legalize. Again, because of the requirements that are put on these businesses, um, these are beautiful facilities. Oh, um, I, yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> I've been in the probably Apple a dozen store. of them around the country. They are. Yeah. There's one in Portland that I felt like I was walking into an Apple store. It was that mm-hmm. just beautiful, um, really well laid out. Um, I, I did not feel like I was in a marijuana dispensary or what, what an average person might think a marijuana dispensary looks and feels like. Mm-hmm. Right. So those are the common myths. We do hear things about gateway drug. I think there's been a lot of um, more recent studies out there. I think the University of New Hampshire uh, produced a study about um, cannabis being a gateway drug. And so there's a lot of additional analysis being done to dispel some of those myths. Um, and going back to your earlier question about normalization of cannabis, I think that's also contributing to um, additional states coming online and authorizing cannabis for adult use. Okay, so uh, before we move on, are there any other uh, any other benefits that we haven't talked about uh, for states that have legalized cannabis use beyond the economic impact, beyond the you know the the balance sheet ish you know, the balance sheet impact uh, and problems with criminalizing? Is there anything additional? Well, sure. I mean, job growth has been tremendous. It's one of the fastest growing industries um, in the nation. Um, There's another report, Leafly's just an incredible publication, but there's another report they put out annually, a jobs report. And the estimates have have been just astounding. I believe uh, in 2021, we saw growth in jobs upwards of 33% nationwide. Um, These are all cannabis jobs. So whether you are plant touching or you're an ancillary company that is working um, within the cannabis space. So incredible job growth potential and opportunities. Um, In California, I believe we saw job rates climb in excess of 27% in the first couple of years. I think we're starting to stabilize a little bit in California. And the other thing that's worth noting is in a lot of these adult use and medicinal states, there is a mandate to provide substantial worker protections. So for instance, in California, um, cannabis operators must sign a labor peace agreement, and there are incentives for uh, cannabis operators that pay at or above 150% of the living wage. And so there's all kinds of things that are being done to provide good paying jobs. Um, I'll tell you another um, scenario. I was in the Central Valley in California recently touring some cultivation facilities. And what you find for cannabis workers there most of them started in traditional ag and cannabis in many respects is cultivated all year round unless you're sun grown. And so they have moved from seasonal work to well-paying permanent jobs in the cultivation space. So there's a lot of job potential there that I find um, very intriguing and, and states are certainly looking at that as another opportunity. All right. I'm going to flip the script on you a little bit. Now, okay. So there's, uh, th- th- as as we've mentioned, there's there's no universal consensus yet, obviously, on whether and how cannabis should be legalized. Um, and I want to dig into what the arguments are that critics make that actually do hold water, and how legislators are trying to address those concerns. I uh, we had a listener uh, who works for a Democratic governor. Uh, right in about a year ago with concerns about potential physical and psychological risks. Uh, She mentioned the correlation between marijuana use and risk of psychosis disorders, including schizophrenia, um, altered brain development, addiction, especially among daily users, chronic bronchitis. So I'm wondering how do those, you can address those if you you want to, but also, um, you know, just zooming out, how do those uh, issues present themselves. Which ones are legitimate concerns? How do you navigate those? And you know, as a lobbyist, I, you're now taking off that hat and putting on the other hat. I get that, um, but but really help our listeners understand the the real challenges um, that that present themselves. 
those concerns are legitimate. I, I think that there is documented evidence that cannabis um, is is not an effective treatment for schizophrenia and can in fact exacerbate certain mental health issues. Um, there is some science out there. One of the the challenges that that we have is is, is a cannabis industry is the fact that it is still a schedule one substance. And so there is not a lot of science out there, um, at least, at least acknowledged science, um, to talk about some of the challenges or some of the negative impacts associated with cannabis. So I certainly would not dispel um, those concerns. I think they're very legitimate concerns. The other issue that comes up often is the fact that cannabis has changed over time. So the, the, the common joke is, you know, the cannabis you smoked in college is not the cannabis that, you know, you're seeing now. We're seeing extremely high concentrated THC products. So that is uh, a concern that has been raised. Um, in California, there is a debate right now over whether or not our uh, labeling requirements are truly informing and educating consumers on the potential negative consequences associated with cannabis use. And so I think, I think that is an area that the industry needs to pay attention to and invest in to um, help better inform um, consumers. And the federal government, I mean, if, if there if there is an ever an opportunity to deschedule, um, I think that will bring in additional resources where we can truly identify both the positive and negative impacts associated with cannabis use. So I'm assuming that it's difficult to get good science, good scientific research done because uh, because of the Schedule One status. Correct. Is that Right. Is Congress anywhere close to and we should say you can't it's very difficult to get studies approved by regular by regulators um, for anything that's on the the schedule one. Right. That's correct. Um, Is Congress anywhere near approaching removing cannabis THC from the schedule one? There are a number of measures that are um, being contemplated in Congress. The most recent is the Moore Act, which was approved by the House a couple weeks ago with three Republican votes, but it was largely... So was, there was some bipartisan support, um, but that was that was approved and that would deschedule. Um, and then Chuck Schumer is also looking at a proposal in the Senate that would deschedule cannabis, and there's other proposals. The challenge I think we're, we have in Congress really is the Senate at this point in time with um, with so many um, competitive districts that we're looking at in the 2022 elections, despite all the progress we've made in terms of educating voters and politicians on the benefits of cannabis, there's still a reluctance. So I think that the there is... There is the makings of a package to deschedule, but I don't think it's going to happen in the near future. I think there needs to be a little bit more work done um, before we see federal legalization. I would note, however, that absent federal legalization, there is a lot of discussion. In fact, there's a bill in California that I'm going to be testifying on today that would allow the governor to engage in interstate agreements. Um, Now, obviously, this doesn't remove cannabis from uh, the Controlled Substances Act. It would still be a Schedule I drug. But what we are seeing is legalized states trying to establish a framework which we hope will guide cannabis legalization at the federal level absent action by Congress. Okay, but one of the biggest issues in the cannabis industry, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. but is the is the lack of access to banking yes. infrastructure. Yes. And that's because uh, all banks, all retail banks, business banks are FDIC insured. FDIC mm-hmm. is not going to insure any company that's dealing in a Schedule One substance. And that's this 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 um and, and so that leaves these independent dispensaries without any access to financial systems that every other business that they're competing with has access to. Um and so I I wonder if there's a way legislatively around that barrier that would allow these guys to have access to the banking systems, um, but for whatever reason, not remove it from schedule 
schedule one, mm-hmm. which by the way, I still don't understand how it can exist on the same list as some of the worst narcotics in existence <laughs> and some of the most addictive sub- substances. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, what are the big scary ones that are on? I can't, I, you know, it's funny. I can't remember. I, I know that, I know that cocaine is a schedule yeah, cocaine, two. Cocaine, heroin, heroin methamphetamines. <laughs> like those are all, all <laughs> controlled two. substances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. uh, I just, um, Anyway, but banking is a big, big problem. Yes. Um, and and so I wonder if there's any in any way you can address that legislatively until I and I appreciate you bringing that up. I I should have mentioned that in the context of social equity because that is the single biggest impediment is is and I did mention access to capital, but I didn't focus on banking in particular as being one of the most significant impediments for um, anybody trying to get into the cannabis space. Um, in terms of banking, I know Congress has made, I think, six attempts to approve safe banking uh, for the cannabis industry. And I believe that there'll be additional efforts uh, before um, the session adjourns this year to enact safe banking at, at, at the U.S. level. However, um, it, until such time, you know, it's, it's going to continue to be a challenge. I will say in California, uh, the industry has gotten very creative. And in fact, there are many financial institutions that are banking the industry. A funny story I used to tell was when I first, you know, began lobbying on behalf of the industry, I would accept payments in cash. And I have stories of walking paper bags of twenties down, you know, the Capitol mall. Um, most of my clients are banked. They have been able to identify creative ways uh, to to gain financial access to major institutions. Um, but those um, those uh, clients are the exception and not the norm. So um, we're going to continue to have to explore different ways to um, uh, grant access to capital, particularly for social equity operators and in more underserved communities. But we're not there yet. Um, we thought there was an opportunity this year uh, in Congress that did not um, that did not move forward. But we'll we'll continue to work on that. In the meantime, California has. Um, partnered with a lot of credit unions um, to provide access to banking, and so we're con- we're continuing to pursue a state route, at least here, to try to expand um, access for our operators. But not everybody is banked, for sure. I mean, this is um, it, it. It just really underscores the problem. If you're going to prioritize licenses, for example, in New York, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. to people who've been mm-hmm. in prison for cannabis-related drugs, okay, great. But if they can't open a bank account, then what good is that? They're going to have to do all their transacting in cash or use apps like Venmo or Square Cash, which is probably yes. what I imagine most of them are doing. Um, it Until just, such it, time it, as they're caught. Until they're caught. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. So, and, which is then setting them up for more problems mm-hmm. uh, in the future. It just seems like a vicious, vicious circle. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. I, sorry, there wasn't. A, I wasn't. There wasn't a question. I'm just uh, no, putting no. these pieces together. But you raise so, a really good point. And you know, another thing we didn't bring up earlier that I should have brought up too is because of of our Schedule One status as a controlled substance. We also don't receive the tax benefits, so we can't write off any of our normal business expenses. So um, the Internal Revenue Service 280E impediment means that cannabis is taxed in excess of 70%, and none of those business expenses um, can be deducted. And there's creative ways, right? And there's creative ways that we are trying to level the playing field, particularly for equity operators in our state. But but by and large, yeah, the, the cannabis industry does not enjoy any tax deductions at the federal level. Um, and that, again, is, is one of, of, you know, a number of additional barriers that, you know, really minimizes or, or limits our success. And, and we are successful despite the odds, but, but the, the potential is enormous if we could find a path towards federal legalization. Is there, um, I, maybe this is a dumb question, but what is the basis of the resistance against the resistance to descheduling at the federal level? Is it mostly Republican, mostly Democrat? Is it mostly based on myth? Is it, uh, are there legitimate concerns? Where does it come from? Is it just cultural? 
You know, that's a really interesting question. And, and I, I wish I was doing more work at the federal level. My, my guess is, is that it's, it's a lot of it is cultural. Um, and then there's just a lack of political will. I mean, despite the fact that we had an overwhelming number of Democrats in Congress approve the MORE Act, for instance, which would have allowed for descheduling, the Biden administration has has shown a, a general reluctance to deschedule. Uh, there seems to be some desire to decriminalize. And so we're seeing a lot of, there's a lot of discussion about record expungement and decriminalization, but the descheduling piece does not appear to be moving forward at, uh, as, as it should, um, given the, the tremendous support uh, for legalization. You know, I'll make a prediction right now. When Altria puts some elbow grease into it, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm right, mm-hmm. huh? That's when it's going to happen. Yeah. Well, that yeah, yeah, and I will tell you, I will tell you that you know, Altria and um, you know, alcohol and big pharma are all um, looking at opportunities and and waiting for descheduling to happen. Um, if I'm not mistaken, Altria is already making investments in California, um, in the cannabis space. Um, so I think I think with descheduling will come a whole host of new players in the industry, which will dramatically change the look and feel of the industry. Um, and that, that's already a concern in California. There's a lot of uh, discussion around how to preserve the legacy of cannabis in California as larger, well-capitalized players are able to come in and compete under our very, very rigorous regulatory regime. And I think you'll see that um, in, in other states as well, particularly as more states come online. Yeah. Altria, for listeners who don't know, is basically the new Philip Morris. They changed mm-hmm. their name after those series of lawsuits a long time ago, which by the way, fun fact, uh, I am the beneficiary of these massive, massive settlements uh, that Philip Morris did uh, when, when that had to be in the late 90s, yeah. um, in, the, in the mid to late 90s, uh, of a scholarship that was made available really? to Nevada students. That's right. Um, the state of Nevada took all the proceeds and, and created a scholarship um, for Nevada students with a minimum GPA for Full ride in state tuition and yours truly. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you, Philip Morris. Thank you, Big Tobacco, for putting me through college. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, let's, uh, yeah. So I, I think that um, that's going to be, they're probably going to go on a buying spree as soon as, as soon as it becomes uh, feasible to do so. They're probably going to buy imagine. up all those independent operators. Well, well, I think, again, yeah. that's already happening. I think it's already happening. Uh, we're beginning to see it in, in California. And as I said, Altria is already playing in the cannabis space. They own, um, they own a handful of companies, at least in California. So I think it's just the beginning. Okay, let's talk about federalism a little bit. We've had a recurring theme on the show. Uh, of federalism over the last couple of months. I talked about it with Lene Erickson, who works on social policy at Third Way. Uh, David Pepper and I uh, talked about this. He's doing work on making sure voters actually, uh, votes actually get counted. Uh, I spoke with Lucy Caldwell about ALEC and the State Policy Network. And so the theme of these conversations has really been that Republicans have been really good at using federalism to achieve their policy goals. Instead of trying to move mountains to get federal legislation. They work state by state and learn from each other and share policy proposals. So the cannabis legalization movement looks like it's a really good example of using state legislation to have a big impact. I'm wondering if you can uh, expand on that a little bit. Since you're, you know, pot girl, you are the person in California. Mm -hmm. Have you been, have you worked with um, lobbyists in other states? Have they modeled their policies after what you've done in California? Have there been opportunities to share uh, structures? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what is the network like of cannabis associations across the states and whether, you know, do they collaborate? Do they mirror each other's policies? And, and um, yeah. So 
not enough. There has not been enough networking, in in my opinion. I the, probably the, at the time I received the most contacts from other states occurred when the governor of California declared cannabis an essential business um, after COVID, um, or you know, in the aftermath of of COVID and and the shutdowns. Um, there were numerous associations that contacted us and asked, you know, how did you do this? How were you able to have cannabis designated essential? And it really started at the local level. It it was a grassroots effort that began in the Bay Area. Um, so the, the San Francisco Bay Area. And we started with San Francisco and we worked all of the Bay Area counties. But I don't think I don't think we would have been declared essential had it not been for that grassroots work that we we embarked on almost immediately when businesses began to shut down locally and before the governor announced legislative action. So, you know, cannabis policy has largely begun at the grassroots level. And I think that's where we've been able to affect change that has really translated into better policy at the state levels. It's that example locally. So for instance, San Francisco, um, again, was kind of the, the the birthplace of the medical cannabis movement. Um, and that seems to be where we've achieved um, successes that we can really point to and build on those to enact very responsible, groundbreaking public policy at the state level. Would you care to make any predictions for federal legalization? Not this year, not next year. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I, I think that we have a, a few more years to go, and I, you know, I, I just, I just, I, you know, I think with the elections um, being as they are, and some of the the recent predictions, I think there's a real reluctance to to take that leap and legalize cannabis in 2022. And and as we're looking in the out years, I'm I'm not sure I see it in the next presidential either. So I, I think we've got a ways to go, but. Um, you know, I think the pieces are there and the opportunities are there. Um, I'm just working state by state at this point um, to try to educate um, and inform. And, and again, we've made considerable progress in California when I look at the work that's been done just in my time since 2012, when I first got involved in this issue, um, you know, the, the, the first two, two uh, lobbyists that represented the industry. One was a drug policy advocate, and the other worked for the adult entertainment industry. Um, now you have, um, you know, uh, the the you know the capital community has in California has very very legitimate, very well respected firms that are really engaging on this issue, as well as um, as as policymakers. And I think you know I think we're seeing that on a state by state basis, and hopefully. Um, that will translate into meeting rule reforms at the federal level, but we're not there yet. Yeah. I wonder, uh, you know, speaking of federal legislation mm -hmm. and, you know, the importance of removing, descheduling mm -hmm. cannabis for, for banking infrastructure reasons, are you seeing cryptocurrencies uh, change the way um, these independent operators who can't get access to traditional banking, banking infrastructure um, are able to do business? You know, I have only heard anecdotally that crypto is being explored um, as an alternative to traditional banking, um, but I, I haven't actually seen I haven't seen any real world examples. Um, there was some legislation that was explored about three years ago around crypto and cannabis as an alternative, and uh, it didn't go anywhere. It died a very sudden and quick death. Um, but interestingly enough, we're, we're also beginning to see a lot of the um, legacy um, you know, uh, thought leaders in the cannabis space start to transition into crypto. So I think there is something there. I just, I just haven't seen it practically yet, but, but there's definitely a lot of conversation around crypto and cannabis. And is that a solution? In 2017, I met the founders of a cryptocurrency that they created specifically for the cannabis industry yeah. and specifically for this reason turned out that it was a scam or something close to a scam. <laughs> yeah. But that was in 2017. And I think that as the space matures, uh, I could very much see 
um, this as a as a as a perfect opportunity. I mean, look, the whenever whenever a whenever a legacy system shuts out any any group of people or uh, or class of people, it's usually the group of people or the class of people that are excluded from the legacy system that are uh, that are the first and early adopters of the thing that replaces the legacy system. So right. I have a feeling um, what we're probably going to see, assuming that Congress doesn't move on descheduling, which I think mm-hmm. you're right, they probably won't, um, is probably uh, Bitcoin will begin to fix something like this or the rails that are built on top of Bitcoin, I imagine, um, something like that. Um, okay, but that's just that's that's my <laughs> that's my prediction. No, you tell me what we should be paying attention to that we haven't talked about yet. What's on mm-hmm. your radar, um, and what should our listeners know uh, about this industry, about this space that that doesn't get enough coverage? Sure. Well, there's so many areas. I think where I'm starting to really shift and focus is on hemp. So hemp is is obviously another emerging market. And what's interesting about hemp is it was it was declared legal under the 2018 Farm Bill. And so hemp cultivation um, is legally permissible and uh, and treated like an agricultural crop, just like any other agricultural crop, whereas cannabis is not, as we it is we've discussed, it is still a schedule one substance. And so um, there's a lot of conversation about what that means to the broader cannabis industry, because there is a lot of science out there and there's an ability to concentrate different uh, cannabinoids or properties in the cannabis plant, including the very limited THC found in hemp. And so we're beginning to see products come on the market that are hemp products that have very, very high levels of THC that are psychoactive, that are getting people high. So um, the FDA has been trying to clamp down on that, all the while still trying to develop regulations around hemp products. And so I think that's a very fascinating area of focus. It's been a a very, very um, hot topic in California. It took three years to develop a framework for um, the regulation and manufacture of hemp products in our state. and so now we're, we're really trying to explore what that means for the cannabis industry and how do we restrict um, and, and can we restrict, um, you know, the, 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 the concentration of THC in these products in a way that um, does not make these products competitive against the, the cannabis industry that is subject to all of these restrictions. Um, and so that's a fascinating debate that that is happening in California, that's happening at the federal level, and that a lot of states are grappling with. So I am definitely paying attention. Um, conversely, there is an element of the cannabis industry that wants to be able to use hemp oil because it is a cheaper legal alternative. So incorporate that into cannabis products. So where there is not grave concern about competition, you're also seeing a segment of the industry that wants to use hemp and how you integrate that is also something that many states, including California, are grappling with. So I'm paying a lot of attention to hemp. Um, I touched on the interstate commerce concept of being able to import and export cannabis products. So that's something that Um, I think we're going to be seeing and talking a lot more about as more states contemplate that framework. And then you raised a really good point earlier about some of the science behind cannabis and cannabis use. And I think there is an absence of clear science um, that that really speaks to maybe some of the concerns um, and implications of cannabis use. And and that is a, a very prevalent debate right now in California and something that I'm very focused on. What about Delta Six? Mm. Tell me about that because I Delta, know very little about it. So Delta Six, I'm not as familiar with, but D it's Delta Eight and Delta Ten. Oh. Yeah. Oh, so oh, D, there are more. We, and okay. we call it we call it D eight and D ten. So that is that is again um, that is that is uh, THC primarily being derived from hemp. So it's highly concentrated, um, and then incorporated into hemp products and sold in 
you know, retail stores, a 7-Eleven, for instance, you can buy um, a D8 or a Delta 8 product unless, you know, there are strict regulations in place and there are not. And so um, that that is an area that is um, of real focus, both at the federal and state levels. How do you how do you restrict that or regulate that in a manner so that consumers um, are not consuming a psychoactive product that is not supposed to, by definition, be psychoactive. And, and if I'm not mistaken, the FDA, um, I think, uh, fielded thousands and thousands of complaints, even in 2021, about consumers that were getting high on hemp products. So that is that is a real concern for the cannabis industry. Um, because again, that that is that is competition. That is a that is not a product that is taxed. It's a product that can be found outside of dispensaries, and it it doesn't meet the definition of of the federal farm bill. And so, how do we regulate that and 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 control that all the while, kind of keeping that within that closed loop cannabis system that is? Yeah, that's fascinating to me because I thought that it was. Um... I thought that the compound was mm-hmm. uh, was different mm-hmm. at the molecular level than THC was, and that's why it was essentially legal. But you're saying it's exploiting a loophole um, for quote unquote hemp products, mm-hmm. right? Which mm-hmm. are supposed to not contain any THC. Is there any difference between the the compounds? So when you look at the cannabis the cannabis plant as a whole, it is it is it is cannabis and hemp. I mean, hemp is defined as um, as a, a plant that is producing under 0.3% THC. So when it's tested at harvest, it must be under 3%. However, um, there is an emerging CBD industry, um, as you've probably well heard. And so CBD is known for its um, medicinal effects. It helps with sleep. It helps with um, stress. Um, it helps with pain management. So it's it's highly sought after, but what we've but not, observed, but it's not psychoactive. It's not psychoactive, but um, what we have found is that you know, as the industry, both the hemp and the cannabis industries, again continue to develop new technologies, uh, the industry, the hemp industry, has learned how to concentrate that THC found in a hemp plant. And so they are able to elevate those levels. And so what you're finding as products coming in hot, if you will, and they well exceed the THC. So you can test at cultivation, for instance, but then you take that product or that plant and you extract it through a hemp extraction or a cannabis extraction machine. And again, you can isolate that THC and increase those levels. So it is it is a an emerging issue. Um, it is a loophole. And I think we're a bit behind in terms of developing clear regulations to safeguard the public from, again, consuming um, high THC hemp products and also safeguarding the cannabis industry. Because, for instance, in California, our laws prohibit um, you know, those products from being sold outside a dispensary. So if you can go to a 7-Eleven and not pay taxes uh, beyond sales tax and get high, that is um, extremely detrimental to our legal industry. And we're seeing that in states, you know, across the U.S. Okay, Amy, before I let you go, you have to tell me a story about lobbying for weed. (laughs) Because (laughs) I have to imagine that you have had so many awkward interactions uh, I, I just, I, I, t- give me something. How much time do you have? <laughs> I don't know. Pick your best one. <laughs> oh gosh. I don't know. Let's see. Well, I'll tell you the, the funniest thing, and I probably shouldn't admit this, but I will. Um, the, I have been approached, I would say probably, I don't know, half a dozen times a year by legislators who have friends of a friend of a friend who are looking to consume cannabis for medicinal purposes. And in every instance, every single instance, that particular policymaker has never voted for a cannabis bill in his or her entire life. (laughs) And so I deal with that quite often. Um, I am constantly being contacted by by policymakers for my expertise in, in, in resolving what ails their friend. 
um, a relative. Um, so that is a common that is a common issue um, or a common incident that I I come across on a fairly regular basis. Um, I explained, you know, walking down. Capitol Mall with, you know, thousands of dollars in 20s and paper bags. That is, that was fairly common for quite some time. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, and then, and then we have, I have stopped using things like words like joint hearing. So we have joint <laughs> legislative hearings in Sacramento. I am not allowed to say that anymore. Um, there's all kinds of, of just funny, scenarios where I have had to, you know, deal with the, the common jokes about <laughs> the cannabis nomenclature. Um, and I have just gotten used to it and they have gotten used to me, but, um, it has been, it has been an amazing experience. Um, I never thought I would be a pioneer in this space. Um, and I, I appreciate all of the, the stories and, and, um, interesting mishaps along the way. It's been quite a journey. So before I let you go asking for a friend, where can people find you on the internet? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Well, you can, I'm a terrible, I'm a terrible tweeter, but I'm getting better. You can find me at Amy S. Jenkins on Twitter and you can find me at precisionadvocacy.co. And I am always welcome and eager to answer questions and dispel myths about the cannabis industry and talk good public policy. So um, I welcome the opportunity for further discussions. Thank you so much for being here, Amy. It's my pleasure. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.